Welcome to the Growth Guide Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. Every week, I talk to authors, subject matter experts, and millionaire mentors to share the lessons that will help you and me be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Today, I had an amazing conversation with Rick Hansen, a psychologist, couples and family counselor, and New York Times bestselling author. Rick is the author of Making Great Relationships, Simple Practices for Solving Conflicts, Building Connection, and Fostering Love. This book provides fundamental skills to help you handle conflict, repair misunderstandings, get treated better, deepen a romantic partnership, and be at peace with others while giving the love that you have in your heart. It was a wonderful conversation. I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Rick, welcome to the Growth Guide podcast. We are here to talk about your book, Making Great Relationships. Before we do that, for our listeners who may not have met you yet, can you start with a brief bio and let them know a little bit about you? (laughs) I'll try to keep it short, right? And I want to say, first off, that I love the title of your show, Growth Guide, because that's kind of a very fundamental thing to me, which is a realizing that whatever has happened in the past, you cannot change. And even what it's like exactly in the present moment is said. It's what is the case. But you can always grow a little, heal a little, learn a little every day. You can grow. Growth mindset. And then I've gotten very interested in a growth toolkit so that you have the skills drawing on recent brain science and also some contemplative wisdom, you have the skills turbocharge your own growth process. So your learning curve and your growth curve, your healing curve, starts steepen. In the flow of daily life, you start growing more of the good inside. So I'm a total fan. What you're up to here? Super short bio, let's see. So I grew up in a decent, uh, loving home with a fair amount of criticism and anxious control. And I I was a quiet, nerdy kid who skipped close to two grades. And I was very young going through school. And I felt shy and like an outcast, kind of like a loser. It wasn't horrible, no abuse, but it was, you know, I was pretty unhappy. And then I started really around age 15, considering how could I help myself? And then that led me to college, entered UCLA in 1969. The human potential movement was starting to move in full flood. I caught that wave through college and then for the next 10 years and finally realized I really better get a legitimate degree. Otherwise, I was going to be, I don't know what, I don't know what I'd be doing. So then I went to grad school. Along the way, I'd gotten into meditation. That seemed very cool. So combining meditating and clinical psychology and then around 20, 30 years ago, got more involved with brain science because it was starting to really come alive. And so then for the last 20 years or so, my work's been at the intersection, if you imagine that three circles, clinical psychology, contemplative wisdom, and brain science. And right at the center of those three circles is sweet spot. You know, it's very cool. And I've been kind of riding that wave ever since. My wife and I, today's our 41st wedding anniversary. We have two adult kids. I live in Northern California. I love rock climbing and taking a break from emails. 41st wedding anniversary, and you were very smart. You timed it. So for those who are, aren't the, the date that we air this obviously won't be the date we have the conversation. Today is Valentine's Day. So that was perfectly timed so that you will never forget your anniversary. And 41 years, that's magical. The intersection of everything you talked about is absolutely why the name is what it is, is drawing on meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy, shadow work, psychoanalysis, and helping people be better, achieve more. And then I add in and become financially free because I've spent 20 plus years as an accountant. Prior to that, Rick, the the goal going to college, my first, I've never shared this on the show, but my first two years were psychology. And the goal was to do psychology and English. My wife said, I think you should change to something that will get you a job. And so I switched to accounting. And I've done it for 20 plus years, but as I near 
early retirement, or we'll call it a pivot, the idea is to go back to where I'd intended to when I was a young student, because that's the purpose. So reading your book, it aligns with the direction we're going, which I loved. And so the first area I'd like to tackle with you is, is just working our way through. It was perfect. There's 50 different ideas and ways you've given people to, or practices that you've offered. And so working our way through some of them and, and leaving the listener to purchase the book and work their way through the rest of them. The first one I wanted to look at with you is this idea of being loyal to ourselves, right? So many of us find it easy to be loyal to loved ones, to our pets, to our friends, but for some reason, not necessarily to ourselves. So what does being loyal to ourselves look like? Why are we so challenged to do it? And then how can we do it? Uh, well, you're exactly right. So the book is 50 very specific how-tos with what you think and what you say each day to make your relationships better. So it's completely practical. Each chapter's roughly three pages long. It's very direct, gets right to it. And so that's the spirit of the book. You know, what do you, what do you need to know? What would really help? And it honestly, it comes out of my experience of just watching couples. I've been a therapist for a really long time. I've been a business consultant. I've been a parent. I've made all the mistakes that the chapters in the book come out of <laughs> as lessons learned. Okay. And so often we're in a situation where we either just sort of feel stuck in general, we don't know what to do, we don't know what to say, or we're in a situation in which we say this, they say that, we say this, then they say that, and then we don't know what to do. And we feel stuck. So I was really focused on giving people skills and th things they can actually do inside themselves and or what they say or how they act with others. So that's the frame. And you're right. First one, get on your own side. Be for yourself. Light the, make sure the pilot light's lit. Be loyal to you. Yeah. Because I've seen probably about half the people I've ever worked with, that pilot light was not lit. And so they were kind to others. They cared about others. They were loyal to others. They, they were muscular in their response to the suffering of others. They were compassionate to the suffering and difficulties of others, not to themselves. And so that's the first one. That's foundational because if in the first chapter to the book, you're not already centered there, well, you know, how can you make use of anything else? And I have found, honestly, that that turning point for many people, not to be a bully, not to be arrogant, not to be conceited, but to realize that you matter too. And that's really important for people, Clint, who belong to any kind of group that have internalized messages that, well, you don't actually don't matter that much, or, well, you know, you need to defer to others, or, well, better not say what you need because, you know, the nail that stands out gets hammered down or something like that. And you think about groups classically, girls and women in particular, on average, get socialized with those kind of messages, other people as well. I definitely got that message that I was to be seen and not heard. I grew up in a traditional, loving, but traditional kind of home. Two parents who grew came grew up themselves in the Great Depression, wanted to control things. You know, shy kid, ugh, stay invisible. So for a lot of people, there's some reclaim, reclaiming to do to get on your own side. And so for when you think about the idea of a lot of times we'll call it, especially in meditation, we'll call it the monkey mind. And so, so many people, the other one I like to do is talk about it as a roommate. You know, if the voice in our head was a roommate and talked to us the way it did, we'd probably kick that roommate out of the place as quickly as we could. Yet, for some reason, we let it just continue to talk to us that way. And, and is that monkey mind or that roommate, is that part of being loyal to us is learning how to shift from the negative narrative that often is it's using to a positive narrative and being positive with ourselves in our own mind? That's part of it. And I, I get into that in different other chapters, as you know, just in terms of things like, you know, don't beat yourself up and, you know, use anger, don't let it use you. Uh, you know, and many times we're angry at ourselves and we're not compassionate with ourselves and, you know, we get carried away. So that's definitely really true. And one of the things I find that's super helpful is to build up what I call in the book, in a sense, a caring committee inside yourself. Like a, 
Yeah, to stand up to the inner critic, the inner pusher, the inner attacker. And, you know, I go into a little bit the neurology, actually, of how to take in the good of experiences of others being supportive and encouraging and, you know, warm to you, toward you. So you build up more and more of the feeling of inner allies or an underlying feeling of, all right, like one of my chapter titles of the 50 is, relax, you're going to be criticized. Yeah, we're going to dive into that one. Yeah, yeah. Sooner or later, someone's going to say something. So what does it land on? Does it land on a kind of barren ground that's not very green for yourself and, and in which the winds of criticism and shaming are blowing at your, you? Or does that criticism land on, a, you know, an authentic, healthy sense of worth and confidence along the lines of, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. I, I get that. I want to do better. I can do better by encouraging myself rather than beating myself up. I mean, we can jump around. So let's stay on that criticism one, because, you know, a lot of these, I'm turning 45 this year, and a lot of these I've only gotten better at, I'd say, in the last decade. Well, most of them the last decade. Prior to that, a lot of monkey mind, a lot of learning. And something that's allowed me to become much better with criticism I'd say would be two ideas. One, someone suggested recently, it might have been on the show, the concept of what if they're right? And just exploring that, being kind to ourselves, but exploring what if they're right? Would I change? How would I change if they're right? And the second one, maybe it's a little less soft, is examining what they say. If they're right, okay, do I want to change or not? And if they're wrong, learning to just let it go like water on the duck's back and no need to argue. They've given you the criticism in your mind. You know, it's may not be accurate and you just move on. But, but for someone who had their life experience to get to that stage, how do they develop that ability? And how do those two resonate with the way you look at being able to handle criticism in a safe, respectful way? This is deep because very often the issue in a relationship is that the people in it. It could be at work, could be your teenager that you're raising, could be your partner, could be your friend, a neighbor, in-law, relative, is that there's some disagreement. There's some difference. When everybody is completely aligned and they're total fans of each other, hey, that's great. You don't need my book. But if you have any relationships that are not like that, it might be helpful to you. And so one of the key things I have found extremely helpful for me, particularly since from my history of growing up, I tend to get kind of prickly and defensive when input comes my way. It has really helped me to try to slow it down and slow down the activation of kind of the more primitive parts of the brain, slow it down, and then try to zero in on what's useful and accurate in whatever the other person is saying, even if it's in a real bag of garbage. And that's what throwing in my way. What can I support? What can I join with? What are the deeper wants that are underneath that what they're saying that I can really align with? For example, I'm dealing with a situation at work where someone important in a team I'm part of is actually dropping the ball. How do you talk with someone who's actually dropping the ball? And it's important for them to stop dropping the ball. And they don't like it. When, because I'm the boss in some way, you know, I'm the leader in effect, and uh, they don't like it. People tend to not like it. You know, hey, you know, see the ball, it dropped. <laughs> oh, and then they all get, understandably, they react. And it's helpful for me to try to remember underneath all that, what do they really want? Well, they don't, they want to feel respected. They don't want to feel shame. They want to feel seen. They want to feel like they can have another chance. There's kind of a forgiveness there. And, so I try to keep that in mind. And then to finish, to really zero in on what I can take maximum reasonable responsibility for and implement going forward. Now, that may just sound so procedural or Spock-like or like a guy would do it or something. Dare I say that? Obviously, saying that kind of joking. But And no, actually, other people are hurting. They have needs. They have wants. One of the chapters titled, Give Them What They Want. <laughs> Another one is, Admit Fault and Move On. Another is, you know, take care of your side of the street. These are all things that are in our power to do. 
that totally increase the odds of good treatment by others, make us feel better, remove distracting side issues that they can start shooting the messenger about to avoid dealing with the message, right? And are kind and compassionate as well. So for me, these are really good guides for dealing with, you know, grievances, criticisms, complaints, and so forth, you know, coming at us. And when you talked about the idea there that you're giving criticism in the way someone's responding to it or the way we're responding to it, often we're not even responding necessarily to the criticism, but we're responding to the conditioning we have from childhood that teaches us to respond to that criticism in a way because of how we would have dealt with it when when we were younger, which is, is why one of the quotes we use the most on the podcast is, uh, until we make the unconscious conscious, you will forever be led by it and call it fate by Carl Jung, and, and I usually butcher it slightly. But what that ties to me is is you talked about this idea of when it comes to accepting ourselves. And how do we get an understanding of that childhood programming so that we can accept ourselves? What does that look like for the listener to say, well, wait a second, so much of who I am today is from when I was six to 11, and I don't remember it. And maybe it served me back then, but it probably doesn't serve me now. So how do we uncover that, bring it to the light, and then program ourselves the way we want to be programmed? Right. Well, that's a great question. So you're talking about uh, knowing ourselves and accepting ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so part of that certainly is self-awareness, classic therapy 101, classic Socrates, know thyself or something, you know, mindfulness. You just become more and more aware of yourself. You make more room for who you are. There's a lot about that that's very fundamental. And part of that, uh, I think, again, it's one of the chapter titles, know that you're a good person. You don't have to be a saint and you don't have to be perfect all the time to be a fundamentally good person, to know that you're a good person. And, you know, you're going to make mistakes, but you could still be a good person. And so uh, in the context here of all this, accepting yourself doesn't mean that you like every part of yourself or you agree with every part of yourself. Think of the psyche, who you are. It's like a mansion with many rooms. For many, many people, me included, uh, many of those rooms were locked up or even painted over as if there was no door there at all. And unfortunately, the way that the brain is and the mind is, is that stuff doesn't go away. It smells. <laughs> it gets rancid. <laughs> Swamp gas starts to bubble out. It leaks, right? And it triggers us. It, we overreact in certain situations. And so it's really important to become aware of the different rooms in the mansion of the mind while understanding as well what's in some of them needs to be regulated. You know, I've um, learned over time that partly because, you know, I was criticized a lot as a kid, I can get overly prickly about criticism. And so I've tried to work with that. Uh, you, you start to recognize that in that room is this kind of snarling dog, you know, like, hey, Fido. <laughs> You know, pet the dog. You don't hurt the dog, but, you know, regulate the dog, if you will, that particular dog. I like dogs a lot. Let's be clear about it. Anyway, so in the context then, it's really powerful for people to consider different parts of themselves and just, and just go, you know, I accept that you're part of me. Imagine like a table, like a round table, King Arthur and the Knights, whatever, the table. And around this table are 10 or 20 parts. Uh, Richard Schwartz and, and before him, many others have pointed out, the, including the Buddha 2,500 years ago, the sort of compounded structure of the mind. In other words, it's made up of many parts that are connected and changing. Parts. And Dr. Schwartz's, I think, recent book is titled No Bad Parts. It's like that. They might need to be regulated. Maybe some of them have grabbed the microphone way too much. And you need to take the microphone back as the kind of core of the personality. But there are no bad parts. Imagine looking at each one of those parts of you and saying, you know, I see you. I see you, irritable part. I accept you. I see you, the part that gets fed up after a while. You know, you have a long fuse, but when you get to the end, you've just kind of had it. I see you. I accept you. I see you, crazy, goofy little kid. 
who wants to have fun and makes a lot of messes in the process. I see you. I accept you. And, you know, on and on it goes. Like, that's extremely powerful. And then it helps us be more accepting of what's in other people. Oh, that's powerful. And so not only accepting of them, accepting of ourselves. And so if we rewind back early in the conversation, when you, when you were saying what you enjoyed about the title, you talked a little bit about mindfulness and the past and the present moment. And it, it made me want to jump right to the second practice, which was the idea of let be, let go, and let in which for me has been pretty life-changing. One of the reasons I'd say, or a lot of the reason I've done a lot of work over the last 10 years in all of these areas is to increase that gap between stimulus and response and to be able to choose emotion, choose reactions, which is still an absolute work in progress and will be a work in progress for my whole life. But it reminds me, you had a statement where you said just about everything I've learned about practicing with the mind fits into three categories. Being with what you're experiencing, reducing what's harmful and painful, and increasing what's helpful and enjoyable. Can you take the listeners through that? Oh, thank you for appreciating that, honestly, um, because it's very fundamental. Let's think of a real-time situation. Here you are, and something's happened with that person, and <laughs> you can tell it's bothered you, right? So the first and most fundamental step is to be with your experience. Be with it. Let be. You be with it. You hopefully bring to bear skills like mindfulness, compassion for yourself, the capacity to tolerate intense experiences, but you're not invaded by them. You're feeling them, but you're not hijacked by them. You're simply being with it. So you might feel the body sensations of getting of being angry, feeling hurt underneath it, feeling frustrated. You might be aware of speeding up, accelerating. There's so many things you want to say. You think you're right. You know, the inner, I don't know what to call it, the chiron that goes under the news thing or say, why I'm right and you're wrong. You know, righteous, but you try to get some air, try to get some space around it. You be with it. That alone is the foundational practice. And sometimes it's all you can do. All you can do is just be with it. You can't change anything. Maybe you're just completely shocked. You're flooded. You just be with what's there. But it's not the only practice. And it's been, in my view, way overrated or isolated as the only thing to do in certain kind of schools of mindfulness and non-dual approaches and things like that, you know, this, it's all about just be with it. Well, maybe if you're a monastic and you can just be with stuff in a meditative way, 10 hours a day, in the rock tumbler, if you will, of 30 years of monastic practice, that might polish a lot of grit. Okay. But what about the rest of us that are in the trenches and, you know, we need to respond right there. What that person said or did at work or across the dinner table or your kid looks at you with a look of total contempt and what are you going to do, right? That's why we also have to work with the mind, not just be with it. And working with has two aspects. One is that we reduce the negative and the other is we grow the positive. So thus, let be, let go, let in. Or to think of the metaphor of a garden that you're familiar with having read that chapter, we can witness the garden, we can pull weeds, and we can plant flowers. All are really important, and they all support each other. For example, to be able to just be with painful experiences, to be able to slow it down in your mind so you don't just immediately react to the flames that other people, the bombs other people are dropping, it really helps to have let in, to have grown flowers and fruit and so forth of a kind of inner calm, a sense of self-worth, inner shock absorbers, you know, so that what lands, you can just slow it down. They all work together. And uh, I think some people tend to be more oriented around uh, being with the mind. Some people more working with the mind. I was more a working with the mind, fix it, fix it kind of person. Uh, then I had to, because I didn't want to feel my feelings because they hurt. And I had to realize over time, oh, got to open up, got to let them flow, got to be with them, you know. And 
So that's how it all works together. And for me, it's a fantastic roadmap. You know, it gives you a kind of progression, like there you are, you're bothered by something, you be with it. Then you move into releasing, you let the tension flow out of your body, you kind of let it drain out of you, you check beliefs you have, you disengage from them, and then you let in a wise perspective, a wise perspective. What really resonates, that really resonates for me. I, I got in a little bit of trouble in my practicum for my mindfulness teacher certification in that in, in one of the videos I sent in, I guess in the Q&A, I integrated that type of approach. Instead of just letting it be, I added in some elements of stoicism or CBT to say, well, hey, you know, you're having these thoughts, observe them. And if they're wrong, don't let them in. And the response was, well, no, no, no. In, in this practice, we just teach people to be with them. And I thought, well, why would we let them be with wrong thoughts. That just seems really odd, Rick. Like I would think I would want to teach them how to challenge those and not let them in. But so I hear you and I love it. And stoicism for people is a great spot. Nowadays, a lot more people will, will reference CBT, but stoicism being the forefather of CBT. And so one of the things you talked about in there was dealing with the anger side of things, which tends to be one of the harder emotions for people to handle. And a lot of us think anger is always bad. And you point out some other authors I've enjoyed that it's not necessarily bad. It, it can be information. It's potentially how we deal with the anger. And, and I love how you said uh, anger has a honey tip and a poisoned barb. And you talk about priming and trigger stages. And, and then what jumps out at me is, well, how do we slow it down? And this idea you have of taking the wheel of the bus so anger isn't driving us. What does that look like for the listener? Well, that's really good. I want to say first that I teach pure mindfulness sometimes, and, and I think there's a place as like a skill. So if you're learning the skill of strictly just being able to tolerate or stay present with, just stay present with whatever you're feeling, which is very profound, then it's appropriate, I think, to teach only that skill and, you know, leave it there. Well-integrated, you know, approach to anything, whether it's a therapy or, you know, in general, I just think, you know, why not play with all the toys? Why not use all the tools? And if simply being with what's there in a so-called choiceless awareness kind of frame is working for you, great. But if it's not clearing your trauma history or helping you acquire skills to be more effective at work or with your partner or your kids or helping you uh, release chronic anxieties or depressive moods, if it's not helping you in those ways, well, then use other tools. Mindfulness is a foundational tool, but use other tools when that's appropriate. So that would be my general you know, view. I'm certainly a big fan of mindfulness uh, about anger which I've tried to become more mindful of, you know. It's interesting that of all the four categories loosely of negative emotions, so we have fear, we have sadness, sorrow, depression, we have inadequacy, shame, guilt, remorse, shame, and then we have anger, ranging from subtle exasperation to blinding rage, okay. Of those four, only one releases reward neurochemicals in the brain. It's anger. People don't like feeling anxious. They don't like feeling sad. They, they don't like feeling ashamed or inadequate or less than or hurt. Anger has that honeyed tip. And it's important to be aware of the seductive power, the way it can just suck us right in. And so for me, I think, as I said, there's a chapter called Use Anger, Don't Let It Use You. And, and as foundation to that, none of this is about adding my voice to that of many voices that try to suppress anger in people who have every reason in the world to be pissed off uh, because they were mistreated in some way or the target of structural bias and oppression, discrimination, even abuse. And no, I'm just trying to say, let's observe what happens when we come at people with anger. It usually doesn't produce a good result. And there's a sweet spot in which you're feeling the anger because it is energizing and it focuses attention, including on what's wrong. 
immobile. It organizes us. So these are useful, especially if a person's been oppressed in some ways or has been mistreated. You know, anger is Mother Nature's jet fuel. And be careful that it doesn't just take you down a road. I've had experiences, including recently, where it's just so tempting to write that email and then hit send. But once you send it, you cannot get it back. And then there you are with other people staring at you, kind of losing your cool on the page or enabling others to avoid dealing with the substantive merits of whatever it is you're talking about, because then they can say, oh, you know, you said that word or, oh, I don't like your tone or, oh, you're bullying or something like that. So, you know, be aware of it, feel it, try to get to what's underneath the anger, often hurt or fear is underneath the anger. And then see what you really want. What do you really, really want with that other person? And if you go to that idea of tone, because you did talk about that later, and a lot of us don't necessarily think of the ways that we're communicating. So we just think about the words we're saying. And what you point out is, well, there's three elements to our communication. We have our explicit content. So what did we actually say to the person? But then we have our tone, which is made up of the emotional subtext and the implicit statements about the nature and relationships. What does that all mean for the listener? And how, do they, how can they make sure that the tone they're using with their loved ones or with their colleagues is the right tone for the situation? Great question. <laughs> it's funny, like research on communicating. There are these three aspects to it. So one nerd to another, you know, you and I, right? Maybe some other people will be interested too. There's the overt content, such as, you know, pass me the salt. Okay. You know, it's a like pass it's an instruction, pass me the salt. Second, there's the tone on it. Now the tone might be pass me the salt, or the tone could be pass me the salt. Right? Tone. And third, there's an implicit statement about the relationship. The way I put the language was in the form of a command, not a request. So already there's an implicit statement that I get to tell you what to do. I get to give you instructions. In the, the tone as well, there's often a communication, like a dot run domination. People tend to put most of their overt attention on the first of these three, the actual content. But what has the most impact is the second and the third, tone. And implicit statement about who's on top, the nature of the relationship. That's why it's extremely important to pay attention to the second and the third and to just try to stay out of trouble. There are a lot of situations where you can realize that for the sake of the bigger fish, you know, or the greater good that you're going after, you just don't need to take the bait. A tendency to just sort of respond quickly sometimes when in fact, you know, it would be better to give it a day and then make the same response, but just other people need more time to process. So don't take the bait, slow it down, try to center yourself in what you really want to communicate. What's the bigger picture here? What's more important than you? Neurologically, when something irritates us or frightens us or we feel hurt by, you know, we're affronted by, we're maybe indignant about it, awareness just overfocuses on that single tile in the mosaic and ignores everything else. That one tile that's flashing red. Get in trouble then. That's Mother Nature's plan to keep us alive in Jurassic Park or the Stone Age, but these days creates a lot of trouble, including on social media. Much better. Open out, go wide, go big picture. And it also helps to have some kind of inner rules that you just will not use a certain tone. You know, like my wife has called me on uh, eye rolls, where I just kind of roll my eyes in exasperation and a little bit of like disdain, like what? And so I've tried to clean that up. What do you think? What's been helpful for you about watching your own tone or trying a softer tone? That's the title of that chapter. Well, what's really jumping out at me, and and it's a big one because I've historically, and I think it comes from a childhood where my dad would yell a lot. And it would be a level of yelling that was just aggressive. You know, there's very few people that have scared me in my life. He's one of them. And this came up for me when you were talking about anger and shame, because one of the realizations I have, the more work I do is like when I get into that situation where I feel shame, 
a lot of times the immediate anger or the immediate answer is to cover the shame with anger so you don't feel the shame. And so then I'll become a yeller with my family. And and so the big thing, it goes back to that earlier stimulus and response and building the gap. And so I think the more I can have that pause and give yourself that 90 second squeeze in a little breath work, a little box breathing. If it's my son who I'm having that interaction with, one of the two, or my wife, throw in a little loving kindness meditation with them in the image and then respond. Because when you do that loving kindness meditation, the way you would respond is completely different in tone than what you would do before it. And ideally, although my wife said it would be odd, is the way that I talk in life with my family, with colleagues, with friends, the way I want to be able to do it is the way you and I are talking right now. It's from a place of curiosity and calm and respect, and it's much slower probably than my average talking voice and much more Each word is a little more clear because we're talking on a podcast. We want to be clear in how we communicate. But this is the way I want to be able to talk in my everyday life. And so the more I can work on shutting down that immediate response, because the other thing that jumped out at me that I wanted to ask you was if you're quick to respond to the email or you're quick to respond to the letter and you skipped a couple grades Given what you've done for study, I can make general assumptions about your level of intelligence, which can often mean that you think really quickly. And so in conversation, have you found historically that you may respond with an answer quite quickly? And that the person who's receiving it, even if you would have taken a minute or two or a day, you would have had the same response. You've just gotten there really quickly. Does it come across to the listener in how quickly you've responded and how quickly you might respond that you haven't put adequate thought into their question and that you're being flippant in your tone? Ah, well, whatever, you know, the genetic lottery, right, of intelligence or or other abilities is so actually I'm kind of a muller. I was that person in school, like in college, I wouldn't say anything the first half of the semester. And then if you were to divide a semester into quarters, you know, but in the, by the last couple of weeks, I was probably the most talkative person in the class, right? Or seminar or something, but I'm a muller. No, I'm pretty patient and and I slow it down partly because I like people and I want to understand what's really been said. And I think you're right. Uh, I'm really struck. Like you're an excellent listener. Here I am, rattling on a few minutes in a row, typically. You're present. Your face is nice and warm, you know. And I like it. And it's interesting to think about. We like it a lot when other people actually listen to us and give us the gift of two minutes of focused attention in a row. It's it's not that we're going to drone on for dozens of minutes or certainly not hours, but a couple minutes. Such a small gift, really. And yet it has such a big impact on other people. So I try to, you know, when I'm on my game, when I, <laughs> I try to remember that and to just slow it down and give other people the sense of being actually received. And as you say that, what can often jump out, and I think this is really important for the listener, and I, I know it's something I want to work on, is when you and I have that conversation, it can be so easy to have that as my default mode. But with the ones that matter the most in our life, our partner, our children, for a lot of us, they're often the people that we offer that to the least. And so what are some good ways? And do you see that in your therapy and in your work? And then when you talk to your clients where you do see that, what are some good ways that you offer them to say, hey, look, like, why don't you treat your partner the same way you do your colleague at work or the same way you do a dear friend? How do we make that shift? for the ones that matter the most? Yeah. Well, you have to want to. You know, there's a joke, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one. But the light bulb has to want to change. It's kind of a Zen teaching in a way. I think it's helpful to have little practices. That's why a book like this is really useful. 
because it's just a thing to do. And each of the chapters is titled in the form of kind of an instruction or a practice. One of them is called Ask Questions. Another is Express Appreciation, you know. And these are good practices. I think so many, uh, like, let's just talk about romantic relationships. Maybe that become a long-term relationship. And the book's about all kinds of relationships, right? But let's say a long-term romantic relationship. People start out, they can just stare into each other's eyes. You know, they're so interested. It's all wonderful. But after a while, maybe the, you know, the spark kind of starts to fizzle, the, some, you know, a lot of water under the bridge. Now, where are you? And what I observe just routinely is that in those long-term relationships, two things do tend to go out the window that are actually really important for the well-being of each person. And they're really important ways to keep re-knitting the fabric of a relationship, which is endlessly fraying. Entropy is real. Rust never sleeps. Uh, the fabric of a marriage or a relationship is, is, is fraying. We need to keep re-knitting it. Well, there are two major ways to, there are two great ways to read in it. One is to ask each other questions and really listening. Offer to each other, you know, significant minutes of deep listening every day. A dozen, 20 for many, many long-term relationships for A to really listen to B for 10 minutes in a row or for 20 minutes over a conversation about something would be a kind of a big deal. It would stand out. And yet it's just 10 or 20 minutes but it would really make a big difference to the person. The other one is on a good foundation of healthiness and teamwork and safety and friendship, maintaining some kind of in a romantic relationship, some kind of romantic connection over the long haul, even as you age uh, into your you know, 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond. Really important. And I just see people often, on any given day, they're nice people. They still love each other, you know, yeah. But they don't make that that effort. They don't build it into their day or their week to make those those kind of efforts. And they're missing opportunities to keep re-knitting the fabric of their relationship together. And so what jumps out at me there is you've been with your wife for 41 years. I've been I've been with mine for 27. And you often think, well, well, gosh, like I'm out of questions to ask you. I you know, I've spent a fair bit of time with you. For our listeners who are in that situation, or or even our listeners who are newer in the relationship, what are three or four questions that we can keep in our stockpile that really evoke the deep thinking in our partner that give us that opportunity to offer them that gift of space and gift of listening? That's beautiful. Well, one question is along the lines of, how was that for you? People have different ways of asking. So often a person will be t telling a, a story like their day or just kind of reporting on their day or they'll just be describing an event or saying something they're thinking about, maybe worrying about. And just some version of, oh, what's that like for you? How, how is that for you? How, how are you feeling about it? And, you know, if the other person then comes back, as many people do, with a kind of superficial or intellectualized or distancing kind of answer, then you can decide whether you want to follow up. Often other people appreciate a follow-up where you kind of go, yeah, I hear you. I'm just kind of wondering. And then maybe an empathic probe. That would be my second suggestion. My first is just open-ended, oh, how was that for you? Or how is that for you? A second one would be an empathic probe that's based on kind of a sense of what that person is talking about, right? Uh, the sense of you might say something like, well, I, I hear you. I, I, I can't quite tell. Uh, did you feel annoyed about that or like you didn't care or, you know, were you, were you sad or anyway? Another question is something like, if it's appropriate, what is you know, when they're describing how they feel about something, just sort of, what does this remind you of? You know, you asked the question about childhood, you know, this situation you're dealing with, I'm like I said, I'm dealing with a situation right now involving dropped balls. What does that remind you of? And, uh, you know, it reminds me of multiple situations where reaching through many time events as an adult and into my childhood in which I was obstructed in in accomplishing something important of various kinds. So I have to be careful about the ways that, that history is involved and turbocharges my reactivity 
here and now, for example. So that would be another question. You know, and not that you're playing therapist, but you know, if you have the room in your relationship to just talk about what else is cooking in the deeper layers of your mind that's at work. And oh, yeah, here's the last one. What do you want here? Oh, yeah, because we often, uh, especially as guys, we often jump to, well, let me solve your problem. But what do you want? Do you want me to just listen or, or do you want some feedback? Yeah. What do you want here? I always forget that one. Yeah. What do you want from me? Or even what did you wish had happened in that situation? You're talk, you're, you came back from the doctor's office. They gave you some kind of worrisome news. Deep, deep down inside, you kind of felt, you know, like, what did you wish? But they were kind of cold about it, you know, and matter of fact, and they brushed your questions off. Well, what did you wish had happened, for example? Or interpersonally, oh, okay, I, I get it. Something bugged you about how I've been talking with you or bugged you about housework, kids, whatever. What would it look like if you got what you wanted here? And not with tone, not like, what do you want? No, not like that. Or, well, what would it look like if you got what you wanted? No, just sincere. I mean, sincerity is way underrated. You know, even if, uh, yeah, acting in good faith, we can, like, I make mistakes, but are you sincere? Are you acting in good faith? And uh, if you are, you know, people usually get it. Yeah. And the more we can read examples of these practices and we're never going to be perfect at them, but the more we can come back and say, I'm going to practice this, I'm going to practice this, the better, the better we'll get by day. Here's a fine, here's a great one. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. In the coaching habit, that's my favorite question is, can you tell me more? Or uh, he'll use an example of, and what else? And what else? And you don't let it go until, until the person has no know what else left. I find that just beautiful. Yeah. And so pivot in a, a bit of a different direction. We'll go back early in the book and you talk about the idea that we all need to feel wanted, recognized and nurtured. Social supplies these like feed the emotional heart just as good food nourishes the body. What does that look like and how can we do that in our lives? For example, can we do loving kindness for ourselves to feel that for ourselves? Or is this one where we're looking outside of ourselves to help supply it, which becomes a bit of a problem if we're always looking outward instead of internally? Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. That's an incredibly deep question. I mean, it, people might kind of hear it like, oh, but actually it's incredibly deep because it gets at some of the deep spiritual teachings around cravings and the endless search for what seems endlessly outside ourselves and yet was already here deep inside all along, right? It's a very deep, deep, deep question. Neurologically, uh, one of the things that I've really focused on, as you know, is this whole sense of taking in the good. Rather than letting it wash through your brain like a water like water through a sieve, while the negative is caught because we have a negativity bias that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. So how can we actually help things land in us again and again and again that help us slow down and act well. So, for example, my story briefly, because uh, I was shy and dorkish and incredibly awkward socially uh, as a kid going through school, I had many little experiences of feeling unwanted and second tier. And also, I, there, I lacked a lot of positive experiences. So in the ACEs structure, you may be familiar, adverse childhood events. There, there's a key score, uh, scale that's increasingly well-researched. These are events. My list of ACEs is zero. I did not have those adverse childhood events. I still grew up in a home with a lot of bickering and criticism and tension and kind of weirdness. And that combined with uh, my kind of shyness and awkwardness in school led to an absence of what now are called positive childhood experiences, PCEs. So ACEs and PACEs, in a sense. And so my point being, 
by the time I landed in college, I uh, felt like there was a huge hole in my heart in which I just had not felt, it was like the absence of the good. There wasn't a lot of presence of the bad. I wasn't bullied. I wasn't traumatized. But there was a significant absence of the good, in part because also I kind of turned away from it and I didn't know how to internalize it. I got defended. I went up into my head. I was numb from the neck down. You know, that's how I kind of went through my teen years and while getting good grades and staying out of trouble quietly, you know, along the way. And then in college, I just stumbled on an incredibly valuable method, which is I started, in effect, recognizing good facts of other people waving me over to sit with them at dinner or a girl smiling at me in the elevator. Woohoo, right? Notice the good facts. And then second, help yourself have a appropriate good experience as a result. Let yourself feel it. Feel it, right? And then third, really important, help the experiencing of that good fact to sink in so that, in effect, you're just staying with it for a breath or two or three. You're feeling it in your body. You, you kind of feel like it's landing. All I didn't know what I was doing neurologically then. I just knew it worked. But neurologically, those methods and others that I teach about, you know, including elsewhere, are evidence-based, and they turbocharge the learning process, emotional learning, body learning, somatic learning, social learning, motivational learning these processes of internalization. And so gradually, drop by drop, brick by brick, I started to fill that big hole in my heart over time. I can still get triggered these days, little things, but I'm pretty full. I'm pretty full up now. And for me, it's an incredibly beautiful practice because it's in your power, right? And it's authentic. It's based on what's real. But when it's real, slow down for a breath, right? To take in the good. Then you have it with you wherever you go, which undoes craving. The engine of craving, including in the Buddhist tradition, is based on a sense of something missing or something wrong. It's a lack and it's deficit-based. So when you feel already full and already balanced inside, there's no basis for craving. You feel already peaceful, content, and rested in love. Not in some white light way. You're still working. You're still dealing around the edges, you're kind of annoyed by this guy who just cut you off, you know, on the freeway or uh, somebody dissed you or you got a one-star review for, about your book on Amazon because Amazon sent it out with a torn cover. Wait, that's not my fault. <laughs> but you know what I mean? That stuff can arise. But in your core, and, that, and even you can return too quickly, even if you get disturbed in your core, you can come back quickly to that because you've built it up thousands of times a breath at a time increasingly hardwired into the fabric, the living tissue of your own nervous system. And how might either a meditation on gratefulness or the act of journaling three things that I'm grateful for today and recognizing those as moments where we received the positive as something we're grateful, is that a way that we can really nourish that and build that sense of fullness? Yeah. Part of it is wrecking, like I said, these three things, in effect, recognize the good facts. Like a lot of us, we don't even notice it. When another person is kind or we got something done, we hardly notice it. We're on autopilot. We're thinking about other stuff. We're ruminating about this and that. Our mind is caught up and, you know, thinking about the last episode of White Lotus or something, just rolling down the highway. Notice the good facts, the ordinary jewels strewn on the sidewalk of everyday life, the, the flowers that are still blooming, the children that are still laughing. I have another little three-part mantra, you know, deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good, right? Deal with the bad, for real. But the best way to grow up the strengths inside that will help you deal with the bad successfully is to turn to the good that's also true. Like you said, you're quoting that, that coach, what else? What else is true? Not to minimize or to rose-colored glasses as no spiritual bypass. What else is true? What's the good that's also true? And then take in the good. Yeah. And when you do it, you feel the benefits of it quickly. It's a great method for children. What you also will often do is you'll run into blocks that'll surprise the heck out of you. You'll suddenly be like, whoa, I'm afraid if I slow down and feel good, I'll lower my guard. That's, and then I'll get whacked. Well, it's helpful to realize 
you can slow down and take in the good while remaining vigilant and centered in calm strength. Or people fear, oh, if I take in the good, I'll become complacent and lazy. I'll lose my edge. Stay thirsty, my friends, like the Dos Equis guy, the most interesting. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go because in, for a lot of people who look at high performance, you'll often hear that some of the traits that people will share is one, somewhat of an irrational belief in what you can achieve. And then the flip side of that, and I've always found it odd because, because I have these two things, so very high self-confidence in what I can do, super low self-regard for anything I have done, like a zero. And so something that's very hard to receive is any compliments, which is the essence of someone going out of their way to offer kindness is to say, hey, I, I appreciate this about you. And for me, like inability to almost receive that. It's great mindfulness. So you're being with it. And this is a good illustration about the place for letting go and letting in. You know, I, I won't therapize you on the air, although that would be a lot of fun. I know you'd be a good sport, right? Yeah, but it's great. You're observing it. And then a question is, well, why not? Let me, a question is, if there was a clone of Clint, we'll call that person, you know, Sam or Susie over there who was doing the kind of stuff that Clint does in terms of solving problems, accomplishing things, being a good guy in different ways. And you saw Sam over there doing that. And then you saw another person compliment Sam for doing that. If you liked Sam, wouldn't you want him to take it in? And if it would be, therefore, good for Sam, well, why not give it to yourself? Why would it not be okay for you to take it in? And this inquiry is a really useful inquiry because it surfaces beliefs like, oh, I'll lose my edge, or oh, in my family we brushed off compliments, or oh, people will think I'm all vain, or oh, it's kind of vulnerable, sort of ooh, intimate with another person to kind of slow down and receive what they have to offer. Oh, so you, you might discover some of that, but I call it the friend test. If it would be appropriate for a friend or good for a friend that you wished well to, toward, wished well toward, well, wow, that's the test. It passes the test. It would be good for you to let yourself receive that as well. Yeah, I think for me, and, and it can also be that you never received it from the one person that you wanted it from. And so when it comes from anyone else, it doesn't matter. It's that one person in your life who you wanted it from, and you never got it. And I, I kind of got it a couple of days ago, and it felt really awkward at first. But then it felt, you know, I could sense that, that effort from the person, and uh, it felt good. It felt good. And I could receive that because it's like, oh, well, I've been waiting 45 years for that. That felt good. Oh. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, that's touching and sweet. And I know we're finishing, so I'll just maybe finish on this. Uh, it's really normal, like the two parts of it. One is obviously that longing. Poof, you know? I don't know. May I ask, Clint, are you a parent? I have two boys, yeah, 14 and 11. Do you know The Runaway Bunny, little book? You mean, okay, it's a really touching book. It's probably aimed at about a three-year-old, but the runaway bunny. And basically, the bunny is running away from the mommy bunny in this various, various forms. And the mommy bunny basically says over and over and over again, I will turn into a this to come find you. I will turn into a that to come find you. And it's about the deep longing in all of us to be found. Yep. Yeah, it's true. And particularly from key people, but to be found in general. And part of it is to find ourselves. Maybe that brings us full circle to being loyal to yourself. Can you find yourself? Can you come home to yourself? Can you recognize the good in yourself, much as you long for key people to recognize in you? Right? That's one part. Another part is to realize that, yeah, it would have been great, or it would still be great today if those key people would give you the whole pie, or to have a kind of relationship like soulmate love where you get the whole pie. And what people do routinely is they don't accept any slice of the pie because it's not the whole pie. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. It's understandable, but we need pie. <laughs> I feel like I'm quoting from Starman, a film in the 80s. Excellent film, by the way. He There's a great scene where he has cherry pie a la mode, and he's like having an orgasm on the screen. It's pretty wild. 
anyway, or apple pie, either one, I forget. I'm partial to cherry pie a la mode, but okay. And so pie, we want the whole pie, but it's better to have at least some of the pie than no pie at all. And actually, as we take in the good of some of the pie, we often build up our capacities and kind of who we are that magnetizes people who are the whole pie, you know, to kind of come toward us. Excellent. And Rick, do you have time for a quick final four rapid fire questions? Yeah, for sure. All right, let's do it. What's one book that's had the most influence on you in your life? There have been many. One of the dorkish first ones was called um, Have Spacesuit, Will Travel. Classic Robert Heinlein book aimed at teenage boys, mainly sci-fi. And it was really landed on me, like me, complete. I felt like a weakling, you know, a wimp. You know, like, bleh. And I realized, oh, I could use my, you know, kind of nerdishness to just figure stuff out problem solved. There was a there was a vision of the possible in that. I think that book had a big impact on me. Dune, also a sci-fi book about learning. Yeah, learning. Uh, Paul Madib, he's a learner. You know, he has a growth mindset, you know, on steroids. That, that book made a lot of difference for me. And then maybe bringing in more current, uh, many psycho-spiritual books. A book that I've read recently that I heartily recommend to everybody is um, One Blade of Grass by Henry Shuckman, S-H-U-K-M-A-N, describes, it's a kind of a memoir of Zen practice in which describes with beautiful writing, he's an extraordinary writer, realizations he had and how he made sense of them and in ways that you can really get a lot out of. Maybe another kind of self-helpy book would be uh, Tara Brock's wonderful book, Trusting the Gold. Yeah, it's so deep. And it's like each chapter is about a page long with a pretty watercolor picture is so sweet. And then closing out the, the the hit list here, if people haven't read it, Lord of Light. Again, classic sci-fi novel, uh, beautifully written. The storyline essentially, it's set in a future Earth-like planet where, you know, s- star traveling ships came, they crashed. The passengers were allowed to regress into a kind of medieval level of technology while the crew took upon themselves the powers of the Hindu gods. And then along comes one of the main characters who takes on the role of the Buddha to challenge the authority of these other crew members, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just gorgeously written. It's fun. It's got some good teaching in it. Okay, I'll leave it there. I have to check that out. What's on the bookshelf right now? What are you reading right now? Uh, well, I'm working my way. I stumbled into the John McDonald um, uh, Travis McGee detective novels, you know, trigger warning, they're written in the 60s and 70s, extraordinarily sexist, hyper-traditionalist, and still, you know, uh, kind of compelling plots and characters. To do. Let's see, recently, I've, on the other side of the spectrum, oh, I read The Death of Ivan Ilyich. I couldn't figure it out, like maybe because I've been a therapist too long. I mean, I felt, I'm probably lame, but anyway, that's a whole other thing. Uh, gosh, and then last, maybe, I, I'll tell you another great novel I just think is fabulous. Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, written by a Nobel Prize winning, I believe she's Polish, about an eccentric woman who loves animals, and it's a detective novel. It's really beautifully written and interesting. Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. Just sounds so evocative in the title. I know, Yeah. And so what's one thing that Rick has bought in the last 12 to 18 months that's under $1,000 that you think, wow, I really wish I'd bought this earlier in life? Well, it's over $1,000, but an exercise machine in my garage. You know, I'd say that. Ah, great question. Earlier. I'm not sure I could answer that because maybe I'm fortunate. You know, I'm privileged for multiple reasons. It's okay. We can go with garage gym. It was a little bit over, but having a gym at home, is a good way to get fit. This is less than that. I had the opportunity to work with a rock climbing guide and because I'm getting older and it's important that I don't hurt myself while I'm rock climbing with ropes and technical stuff. So he goes up first because he's better by far than I am. And so, and it enables me to climb challenging things without risking hurting myself. And I've invested in days in Joshua Tree Park with him. And if I can put a plug in for him, people can find him online. Roddy. Macaulay. The way I'll put it here is that Michael Jordan 
is the Roddy McCauley of basketball players. Oh, wow. And Joshua, what a beautiful area. Yeah, Roddy McCauley. You can find him online. Yeah. And he's elsewhere. He's in the Eastern Sierra in the summer and Joshua Tree in the winter. Yeah, Joshua Tree is phenomenal. I think that's where I did my only silent retreat. It was a blast. And so the last one, because the show's about growth, is what is one mindset shift, behavior change, or habit for you that's had an oversized impact on your life? Great question. Many I could think of taking in the good, absolutely fundamental. I'll call it like widening the view, whether it's more of a bird's eye view with somebody you're in a tiff with, or in this moment of experiencing even meditatively, widening the view. And neurologically, it does a lot of good things. Uh, It kind of calms down the self-centeredness. It pulls us out of rumination. It gives us more of a sense of big picture, brings in new information. It's calming. Just spaciousness, spaciousness. And more and more, identity starts shifting out of the flotsam and jetsam in the streaming of consciousness into more of the streaming itself, the spaciousness of awareness and spaciousness of this moment of occurring in reality altogether, that kind of widening out. That's had a big, big impact. For our listeners, you can practice, we, I like to say, when in doubt, zoom out. Just widen that zoom. So Rick, thank you for joining us today on the Growth Guide Podcast. Really enjoyed having you here. Thank you, Clint. Could have been hours. Conscious of your time. Thank you. I'll press. Yeah. Thank you. Bows back. Take care. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.